1: Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I am Dr. Roger McPhillon. I often, Sean, get questions either through email or through our podcast email as well as from all my patients about antidepressant withdrawal, how to get off the drugs, how to taper the drugs in a safe and effective manner. And I'm very clear that I'm not an expert in that area just because I'm promoting what, I, what is sound science clear that this is evolving and in fact we're learning from a lot of lay people and a global community of people who've been harmed by psychiatric drugs that information is valuable and i've been looking forward to this episode because this is a a, a person who was harmed from the drugs themselves and then created solutions And I want to introduce Adele Framer. Uh, She is a lay expert in psychiatric drug tapering and withdrawal syndromes and a widely recognized patient advocate. She resides in San Francisco, California, retired from uh, information systems design. She is a survivor of 11 years of antidepressant antidepressant withdrawal syndrome herself. Many will know her as... uh, Altostrada, the pseudonym in which she founded survivingantidepressants.org, a peer support site for tapering psychiatric drugs and withdrawal syndrome. The site holds more than 6,000 longitudinal case histories from its 19,000 members and receives more than 7 million page views a year. I have referred patients who've been trying to get off antidepressants to this support group. Uh, Adele authored a paper, What I Have Learned from Helping Thousands of People to Taper Off Antidepressants and Other Psychotropic Medications, a paper published in 2021 in Therapeutic Advances in Psychopharmacology. That's been viewed 108,000 times and cited by 27 papers. She also co-authored the paper, Protracted Withdrawal Syndrome After Stopping Antidepressants, a, district, a descriptive quantitative analysis of consumer narratives from a large internet forum. First author, Michael Hengartner, and that was published in 2020. That was viewed 36,500 times. It cited more than 29 papers. I've read it myself Dal, welcome to the Radically Genuine podcast.
2: Thank you. De- thank you Roger and thanks for that very gracious introduction.
1: Well, I am really interested in the person behind Alto Strata. I know that you are now um putting yourself out there publicly and talking more about your background and what you've learned over the past 15 plus years. Can you tell our listening audience your background, your story, and how you got to the, the place of, of founding survivingantidepressants.org.
2: Well, that's quite a long story, but I'll I'll uh, do do my best. Um, um, I was an ordinary person who wandered into my doctor's office. Um, I was um, I was working at the time in um, in the uh, the web industry, which was very new. And it was at the time of the dot-com crash. So my, there was a lot of work stress my company was going under and, um, and I had problems with that. And so I, I talked to my doctor and she said, well, you can have an antidepressant. They're all the same. And she tore off a prescription for paroxetine. Uh, so I took 10 milligrams of paroxetine for about, uh, a couple of years. Um, and I started to feel some pretty uh, discouraging adverse effects, of course, you know, the, the sexual dysfunction, which is really common. And, uh, and I started to really slow down, I got very sluggish and demotivated. And I just felt like a slug. And so I, I you know, I, I figured, well, this, at first, I thought, oh, you know, this must be aging, I was on Brink of menopause, but then I realized that it, it was probably the paroxetine. Um, so I tried to go off, and it was disastrous um, because I, um, uh, I I was following a psychiatrist's instructions. He said, "Well, I'll prescribe Lexapro to you, and uh, you know it has fewer sexual side effects," which wasn't which was absolutely not true. Uh, and he said, and I said, "How should I do this?" And he said, "Well, you just switch from Proxetine to Lexapro. You know, just you know, take stop, you know, take take Paxil one day to take Lexapro the next day." And I had terrible, terrible, terrible withdrawal from that. Um, so I went back on uh, Paxil, and I uh, well, when I, when I told him that I had a terrible problem with going off, um, he immediately said. Uh, you know you're not my patient anymore and he was pushed me out the door and I had to beg for another prescription for paxil from him which he threw at me as I was going out the door uh, so I went back on and I was you continued to be miserable on it um, and then I decided that uh, I go to an, an elite medical center up here in San Francisco uh, to the psychiatry department because i thought they might be the experts to help me go off and when i spoke to them they said well you just go off over a few weeks it's very easy you just go off they didn't give me any instructions um so i did that and again uh, and over a few weeks and actually what happened was i, I probably de- I developed brain zaps while i was i can't even say I was tapering but i was you know i was reducing the drug over a few weeks um but i didn't pay any attention to them i thought well that's peculiar but you know i continued to go off and then when after i quit i developed hypomania which um actually was a very delightful exciting period uh where i was very uncharacteristically busy and optimistic and friendly and outgoing and chatty And that lasted for perhaps a month or so, a month and a half. And then I went into a more typical uh, withdrawal pattern of disorientation and um, uh, sporadic uh, spells of incredible deep despair and anxiety and poor sleep and... uh, it just wasn't good. In the meantime, I was still going back to that psychiatry clinic and they were they were trying to convince me I had relapsed. Um so so they you know gave me several prescriptions. Uh I did take Wellbutin for a period and uh which gave me blood pressure spikes, so I had to quit that. Um in the meantime, I was still having the brain zaps for I had brain zaps for seven months. But uh, all through uh in in this particular period i was having a more typical withdrawal pattern um that clearly wasn't right uh, and uh it took me uh i i was a believer that they knew what they were doing so when they were giving me prescriptions i thought that they were had some kind of like, you know a way of uh, repairing this but But uh, after a while, I realized that they didn't, they didn't really know. And they were just experimenting. Then I went to a private psychiatrist. And it was sort of the same thing, except that um, I, he was, he was so expensive. And I, and I um, would see him. And uh, when in our appointments, he, I would tell him, I really needed help with withdrawal syndrome. And, and I had by that time gone to the medical library and uh i had had printouts of all these papers about withdrawal syndrome and he he didn't pay any attention none of them paid any attention to to the literature that i brought to them and i was and i thought you know surely they're scientists and they'll want to know about this and i'm an example of it and they'll they'll want to know so that they can um prevent other patients from having the same problems that they, you know, they would, they would want to, to learn, but they would ignore ignored all of it.
3: That's a and very they, reasonable I, assumption of you, <laughs> right?
2: Well, I was, yeah, I, I mean, I was truly a believer in, you know, that doctors were scientists and helpful and, uh, continually updated their knowledge and, um, and really knew what was best i you know i'm i i didn't start out to be a person who questioned my doctors um so so he spent a lot of time trying to convince me that i was uh deluded uh and uh finally (laughs) and this went on for seven months so so uh finally i said to him you know i really don't like our dynamic And he said, "What do you mean?" And I said, "Well, I keep on telling you what's going on with me, and you keep on telling me that I'm deluded, and I don't think that that's right." So I left, and he was quite surprised. Um, Then I, I was still feel I was barely hanging on, uh, you know, working at the time, and uh, and I, I really felt like I needed to find some kind of a solution to my problem um and uh very reluctantly i started looking around on the web and i joined a peer support site myself and this was something that i had avoided for a couple of years because i didn't think that the you know that the patient run sites were credible i was still thinking that medical authority was really what i wanted and so i found really large communities of people who had the same problem um At that time, uh, which was about 2007, there were like there were five or six um, forum sites devoted to different uh, withdrawal from different antidepressants. The one I joined was called Paxil Progress, and then the um, there was another one, Benzo Buddies, for withdrawal from benzodiazepines, which is still in operation. It's probably the largest and oldest. Uh, forum site for drug withdrawal. Um, so, so I, um, you know, very reluctantly went to patients, went to, went to people like myself to ask what is going on here. Uh, and, um, there was a, even then quite a very large subculture of patients. Um, so, uh, I was a member of that site for uh six or seven years um i was still hanging on to working although my uh my concentration and my uh my i wasn't sleeping well and uh i, I was very disoriented but i would you know do my best at work and i managed to get by um, and then I changed jobs, and I got into a more stressful job, and I became much worse. Uh, and I stopped sleeping altogether. Uh, and that was a t- very terrible time. I just, I just got much, much worse. And uh, and I had to stop working. I went on disability. Um, yeah, it, it just, there was, I just didn't see any end to it. I couldn't find any medical help um, and uh, and I was seriously thinking of uh, driving up to Santa Rosa and buying a gun. Uh, but I didn't know if I had enough ability to concentrate to go through the required um, course of instruction. You had to do a couple hours of instruction before they let you have a gun in California so i didn't know if i could handle that much less the drive so so just in the nick of time oh, i had been working and working and I, I had been i had been contacting every possible person who might know anything about someone a doctor who could help me with withdrawal and finally in the very nick of time somebody suggested the psychiatrist who was actually right here in san francisco within walking distance of my apartment, who had um, sort of a subspecialty in um, adverse effects of, of antidepressants. So so I took my stack of papers to him because I thought I would have to convince him that I had this problem. And uh, and he said, I don't need to look at that. I've seen it all. And he, he did, in fact, understand what was happening. Mm. Um, I can't say that uh, there's any definite cure for it, but uh, he, but I did well with extremely tiny doses of lamotrigine to settle my nervous system. And, um, and I believe just a tiny, there was a tiny bit of um, uh, a lyrica to sleep. Uh, and, uh, and what I'm talking about is much less than two milligrams of either drug uh and uh it took me about 3 years to stabilize on that and uh it was a real up and down time and that was it was very difficult so and then uh after that it took me another few years to go off of those two drugs
1: unfortunately your story is quite familiar yeah we see this way too often where someone is dealing with life stress Uh, work-related stress or a life event that would be typical of the lifespan. And you turn to your doctor and they they provide a a prescription. And that prescription provides some adverse reactions or responses or the attempt of trying to get off the drug creates that. I'm surprised that you were not diagnosed bipolar disorder given uh, some of the symptoms that you reported, which is often the case and we have doctors who are still proclaiming this today, that uh, some of the adverse effects of being on an antidepressant, which provide create symptoms that are similar to bipolar disorder, are just kind of stating, well, you were undiagnosed bipolar. How did you avoid that diagnosis?
2: Well, I did, in fact, get that. (laughs) That was suggested to me. (laughs) But it was so stupid, I just rejected it. (laughs)
1: Well, that's the difference here. I, I, I think you're such a, um, first of all, you're a strong advocate and you're, uh, you're certainly a very smart woman who did a lot of research. Unfortunately, there is just blind trust in the medical authority for way too many, and they just assume that to be true. And then they go on their next regimen of psychiatric drugs. How were you able to under that, you know, un, under those conditions in that state and being able to, being someone who trusted their physicians previously, how were you able to, to question that?
2: Well, uh, yeah, I guess as, it, uh, you know, I, I have, I have a lot of issues. I have a lot of personal issues, but, uh, but I, I always thought that I knew my own mind. So, you know, I mean, of course, like, you know, I have there. Are, have many habits of mind that work against me but you know but i always you know which i you know i'm still working on but but, but uh but i i never thought that anybody else knew my mind better than i did
3: yeah so that so, leads, that leads me to a question <clears throat> excuse me when you were going into the doctor and they were saying some of your your feelings were were relapse relapse how did you distinguish with, between withdrawal symptoms and relapse? How did you navigate that?
2: Well, I had a very clear idea of how I felt before I took the drug and then after I took the drug and then after I went off. I mean, there was no, you know, I wasn't muddled about that at all. Uh, you know, when I went on the drug, I was in very good health. I felt good in my body and I uh you know, I had a lot of distress because of my job and um, you know all the problems that come from a you know deteriorating social environment, uh, you know I mean you know it's a, it was company going under, people were not happy there, uh, and uh, or they were very worried, and um, you know I, I I knew I knew what was going on I I. I I have, of course, I have, as so many of us do, a history that might suggest that uh, you know that our emotional problems are deep rooted in our family history and uh, and experiences up until that point. But uh, but I you know I I was clear about how I was feeling.
1: It's interesting. We just published a podcast with Rob Wipend who mm-hmm. is the author of the book, Your Consent is Not Required. And he has a, a chapter in, in that book around you know insight and how mm-hmm. the psychiatric professional, if you are in any way resisting the diagnosis or the treatment, is that then your resistance in itself is labeled as poor insight and a symptom of your mental illness. And you were able to clearly um, have a conversation with your treating psychiatrist who wanted to present you as somebody who was delusional to... Uh, you know, clearly present not delusional in the manner in which you interacted with this professional and get out of that unhealthy relationship?
2: Well, I I guess I'm just not uh, very deferential.
1: Which is an (laughs) important quality.
2: so, 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 you know, like, yeah, I mean, just, and he was quite an imposing person, but I, uh, it's like you know, no, that doesn't make sense to me. See, I'm a very, you know, I'm very logical. So, so that's a, kind of my, my retreat is like, you know, you know, does not compute. So, right. <laughs> you know, enough of that. So I was, I was done with that. I was like, you know, I gave it a good shot. You know, I listened to him for seven months, uh, but I was just, you know, I could, I could feel in my body that it was like, you know, this is like, you know, I was, I was allergic to it.
3: Can you share a little bit about that in terms of the withdrawal symptoms? You mentioned brain zaps, and I'm I'm just curious, Uh, I had never heard that before. Maybe I had read it, but just didn't focus on it too much. What is, what's that experience like?
2: Well, the way that I felt it was tiny little, I mean, when people call them zaps, it's, that's a good way to describe them. tiny little sensations in my head that were like something snapping. Mm. It was like a little snap and, uh, they would occur. uh, Now for me, um, well, okay, this is also part of my history. Well, being a baby boomer way back when I did some drugs. (laughs) So, so, so I can also, I could also distinguish what was a drug effect and what wasn't a drug effect. I was not, so you know, so, so anyway, so, so I felt, I felt the zap. Well, you know i knew i'd gone off of paroxetine and i felt the zap and uh, and i thought oh, that must be you know like an effect of the drug it, it didn't it was distracting but it didn't hurt and um and i get them oh i don't know it it depended I, you know maybe like you know half a dozen times a day some people have them much much worse uh mine persisted for seven months but uh um, uh, from my website, I know that people experience them in different ways, but I personally felt it as a little, a little snap in my inside and it definitely felt like it was inside my head.
1: So take us up to the founding of this, of antidepressant.org. I'm interested in to know like how you went about doing this and everything that it took to get this off the ground.
2: Yeah, Uh, well, what happened was uh, again, uh, going back in my history, I was a very early adopter of social media on the internet. So I had been involved in what you might call social media since the nineties. And so I joined the peer support site and I was an active member uh, that was Paxil Progress uh, while I was experiencing um, the first half of my withdrawal syndrome. And uh, as these uh, online communities often do, um, this uh, community started to deteriorate, and the some of the people there said, "Well, where where will we go if we can't be here? Because this is you know this is our home and this is our support network. It was really important to them. So I um, among us, I probably had the most." the skills appropriate to start a website and but there's there's nothing very fancy about surviving engine depressants.org it's a very plain off-the-shelf forum software that requires a minimum of attention which was all i could handle at that time because i was also experiencing withdrawal syndrome i was in protracted withdrawal um so i started this site and um it's, it's, I pay the bills from donations and the members have been very kind in, um, in, in supporting with donations. Uh, And um, so that's how I opened it. Uh, We had a core people, a core people who uh, came from Paxil Progress. And then uh, as, as these things do over the years, uh, it attracted more and more people in a very typical Kind of snowball kind of fashion because the um, the search search results uh, would bring in people, so so more and more people came in. Now uh, there are about nineteen thousand members now that have accumulated since two thousand eleven when I started the site, but there are millions of people who peek in through the web who don't register.
3: Yeah, I did that before this uh, this interview. myself uh, I spent as well. some time on there, and yeah. I was just reading through some of the materials that were there. And I think you require them to register only if they want to ask a question. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, if they want to, if they want to interact, otherwise, otherwise, all of them. Well, almost all of the material is publicly viewable, and some of those. I I don't have the figures right now, but those many of those topics about tapering, different kinds of drugs have been viewed thousands and thousands of times. And I'm going to presume that that was by people who wanted information about going off of those specific drugs.
1: Adele, before I tap into your vast experience in this area with some specific questions that I know a lot of patients have, I am curious to know your thoughts on the general mental health field and psychiatric community. There's a lot of ignorance out there that continues to be promoted by doctors and primary care physicians who are prescribing these drugs, how have they fallen so far behind the science on this issue and failed to inform their patients?
2: You know, one of the very, I guess you'd say, the uh, consistent questions that people have about this situation is, why don't doctors understand what's going on I don't know if I've ever found uh, an answer to that. They don't get any, they get very, very, very little information about drug withdrawal issues in their medical training. This is, this is true to this very day that, uh, whatever is, uh, whatever they get before an MD degree, very little about drug withdrawal. And it's usually in the context of addictive drugs. So they believe, uh, that uh, the psychiatric drugs mostly are not addictive although benzodiazepines are. So, so they think that not, not addictive means that the withdrawal problems are virtually non-existent. Um, now, why don't they hear what their patients are telling them or you know, the information that's been coming out over the last probably five years uh there's probably an element of cognitive dissonance involved that they don't want really want to believe that that's true they haven't heard it from official sources that they recognize as official meaning in their medical training and by and at their conferences so so they don't want to believe it i mean it's been called misinformation um I think that you know, we're, we're. I think we're making a dent, but the it's, it just takes a long time for a very uh, conservative um, specialty such as psychiatry to make changes.
3: So you had shared your story about when you wanted to start getting off the drug you were on. Um, there was no specific information that was provided. And you've also published that paper that pulled from all the resources that are on surviving in terms of um, the one thing that kind of stood out to me is when it comes to withdrawal symptoms, there's two specific times. There's the acute and then there's the protracted. For our listeners and even for the doctors that may be listening, can you, at what point does it go from acute into protracted?
2: Well, this is a, a distinction that's been made by addiction medicine. And, and from what I've seen in uh, having to do with psychiatric drug withdrawal syndromes, it's also true of them. Um, that initially when people go off of the drugs, they'll have some very uh, dramatic symptoms. For instance, you know, heroin addicts might be vomiting. Um, or, and that's also true of people who might go off of uh, antidepressants and other drugs. They, initially when they go off, they, they might be uh, nauseous. Um, they might uh, be sweating. They might be trembling, and these are recognizable physical withdrawal symptoms. Um, this period, uh, according to Lerner and Klein from 2019, who written by two people who are associated with the FDA, uh, across uh, all uh, psychotropic drugs lasts for maybe like 4 to 6 weeks and uh then this and and it and there seem to be you know so, some types of these these acute symptoms are particular to the drug you know like it's more likely you're going to be vomiting coming off of heroin than off of let's say sertraline but the um the, so, so the, the the acute symptoms last for you know maybe a month, month and a half, and then it seems as though all the withdrawal syndrome settled down into a pre- protective withdrawal that typically involves disorientation, insomnia, um, spells of um, despair uh, and uh, uh, anxiety, or what's called anxiety. These these surges that are Kind of, uh, they're they're physical in nature, but the best, you know, the only term that we can come to them, we can call them is anxiety. We we don't have enough, we don't have the vocabulary to really describe these things. So these, uh, so so these are typical across uh, protect. excuse me. These are typical, yeah. Um, uh, Post acute with symptoms across uh, all all drugs. Uh, There may be emotional symptoms as well. Uh, Very, from my observation, very common is an emotional anesthesia. I'm gonna call it emotional anesthesia because uh, it is distinguished from the so-called emotional blunting that is supposed to be associated with depression in that the uh, person gets no sense of reward from anything. And this was something that I experienced for many years. It's only, I guess, probably in the last six or seven years that I have come out of this. So so the um uh the emotional the emotional anesthesia as opposed to acute withdrawal syndrome, in from what I've seen, is extremely common across psychiatric drugs and lasts a long time. And That's the symptom that people most often describe as depression, which may be interpreted as relapse. Mm. So, so again, we have a lack of terminology to describe this stuff. And so when people, and this is an extremely alien feeling because even when you're depressed and in my lifetime, I have experienced real depression, you get pleasure from something so uh you know even you know anhedonia is not absolute either so the the so this is an absolute it's like it's like being you know completely numb and then it um it's often accompanied by depersonalization uh derealization uh lack of motivation and all of these are are, could be interpreted again as um Psychiatric symptoms or relapse, but they're typically more complete and more intense in the protective withdrawal stage. Plus, they appear across psyche, Excuse me, across all psychotropic withdrawal syndromes, including alcohol, uh, methamphetamine, uh, uh, fluoxetine. Every every psychotropic has has a similar effect, and um, you know it's it takes a long time for the nervous system to rebuild itself.
3: I'm just curious in terms of a prevalence rate well, when somebody's going through withdrawal symptoms acute and maybe moving into the protracted withdrawal, do we understand how many percentage of people actually go through these symptoms?
2: well you, you know my my site since my site is all self selected, we can't say that I can't come up with any statistics of frequency, mm-hmm. but the uh, um other studies have estimated that about half of people will experience withdrawal symptoms coming off of antidepressants. And uh, it appears that perhaps um, another uh, half of those, which are 25%, might be might have experience protracted symptoms, which mean symptoms going past uh, four, to, four or six weeks. So there's a very uh, you know the the cutoff is about you know, a month or so. Now, coincidentally, and I think that this is significant, um, in the psychiatry textbooks, they'll say that withdrawal symptoms only last a few weeks, and I think that what they're talking about are the acute symptoms, and they've missed entirely the post acute symptoms. so so the area, where they're most confused are the post-acute symptoms. And because the post-acute symptoms, which have a lot in common with post-acute symptoms from, uh, from addictive drugs, um, they're, they're, they can be ter- interpreted as psychiatric disorder or uh, um, relapse. So, so I think most commonly people who uh, experience protective withdrawal past a few weeks or a month or so, are diagnosed as relapsed and they're re-medicated. I think that that's the usual, I think that's the usual scenario. So the people who are who come to my website who have protracted withdrawal are the stubborn ones. <laughs> they rejected their, their diagnosis of relapse.
1: Do we know anything about the various drugs, whether it's in SSRIs or SNRIs? Are there certain drugs that seem to be more dangerous. In fact, that's harder to get off of, uh, when you talk about the the various drugs within the classes.
2: Definitely. Um, paroxetine seems to be the star. And, uh, since probably the eighties, it's been known to be a, I think that it goes back to the eighties. It's been known to be a real problem in terms of, uh, adverse effects and withdrawal. So it can, it's, it's always at the top of the list of every single paper about withdrawal. Uh, so paroxetine is the worst in terms in, in, in among the uh, antidepressants. Um, there's, there's an indication that fluoxetine might be somewhat easier than the others because it has a much longer half-life than the others, but there's still a potential of withdrawal syndrome from going off of fluoxetine too fast. So that that can be pro- a problem because doctors will say, oh, fluoxetine is self-tapering. They told people to quit. And what happens is that the, you know, let's say the 50% who could handle, you know, practically any type of tapering won't have any problems coming off of fluoxetine as it fades out over its half-life, which is over a month. Uh, but the other half will, and then the, you know, half of that half, which is 25%, will get protected with symptoms from fluoxetine. So, so uh, even if, so one can't be complacent about fluoxetine. Um, and uh, among the antipsych, well, the antipsychotics are an issue in tapering because even if you're taking them, for reasons other than psychosis and in the united states they're prescribed very very frequently for sleep for a very uh, you know like inexplicable reason um the uh if you go off too fast you can get uh, symptoms that might be interpreted as um, psychosis even if you've never had psychosis if you've had if you if you've had psychosis then you're in real trouble because if you go back to the hospital with your history of psychosis you're going to be put on a batch of other drugs of other antipsychotics so so the antipsychotics need to be taped very carefully no matter what your um you know, what your initial diagnosis is and even at low doses and you know i ha- i have a a woman who's who's developed tardive dyskinesia on 25 milligrams of ketamine, and uh, she's tapering, but her sign for tapering too fast is that her tardive dyskinesia gets worse. So, so we have to taper so that she doesn't trigger worse tardive dyskinesia symptoms. It's really tricky, but she's very good at it.
1: And I know I'm really quite interested in trying to determine, I'm sure, as a lot of people are, who would be more vulnerable to experiencing these withdrawal symptoms. It's taking me into literature on those who, have, who are more likely to have an adverse reaction based on uh, their metabolic system, how they metabolize the drugs, and even potential um, you know, genetic kind of variations of a specific... Uh, metabolizing gene that would lead someone to become suicidal or even homicidal. Are you, are you aware of who may be most vulnerable to to these drugs, where they could develop this protracted withdrawal syndrome?
2: Well, I'm glad you asked that, Roger, because I do have an opinion about it. Uh, yeah, in in my observation, and again, like, I don't know how I did it. But I managed to review thousands of these narratives. Um, the people who are most prone to the worst difficulties are people who have a history of going on and off drugs, drug switches, adverse reactions to psychiatric drugs, uh, previous failed tapers. I guess that probably covers it. Now, the thing is is that switching people from drug to drug a, especially among antidepressants is extremely common so i would say that you know if, you, if you've uh, been on uh, your antidepressant for several years and you've had a bunch of drug switches you're probably you know it's it's, it's you're you're in a zone that might be pr- more prone to withdrawal um, but uh, I don't think that there really are any um, metabol- metabolic or genetic predictors of who's going to have withdrawal symptoms. I think it has to do with your drug history. Uh, now, there is a special subset of people who are um, had initially gotten really bad adverse effects from an antidepressant uh, within a couple of doses and uh or you know or a few and uh when they go off they have symptoms that are very similar to protracted withdrawal syndrome they've got the disorientation depersonalization emotional anesthesia simply not not feeling like themselves and they they'd only been on the drug for a few days perhaps and uh they're, and they probably have a, gen, you know, a genetically determined sensitivity to the serotonergic or to, you know, a, a whatever type of drug it is. Uh, and what we've seen is that their trajectory of recovery is identical to that of protective withdrawal, but fortunately on the shorter, shorter side because they haven't had that much drug exposure. So, So there was something that happen that destabilize their nervous system and it takes them you know some months many months to recover but probably not as long as people who have protective withdrawal from let's say cold turkeying uh zoloft after being on it for 15 years and having a million drug switches
1: got it i asked this question to a, a psychiatrist that was on our podcast Dr. Greenberg, who's a nutritional psychiatrist, and he's trying to do some work in this area as well. Do you believe that there are some people who are just never able to get off their antidepressants?
2: Oh, that's a tough one because apparently, uh, and David Healy found this that there are some people who just really—I mean—they cannot get past that last uh, that last. Small dose. You know, uh, typically it's easier. Uh, well, I mean, it can be. It can be hard to taper at, at any rate. But when people get down to low doses of the drug, it becomes harder and harder to taper. And they and he finds that he's found people who are stuck at a low dose and they can't. So they can't go off completely. Um, and drug substitutions are, are are disastrous. So they just have to cope.
3: They, in terms of the the dosage, if they're um, if they're going through that process, or is it because they're breaking it down into such a small amount? It gets difficult at a certain point. I'm I'm sorry, I'm, I was having a hard time understanding.
2: Yes, it does get difficult, right? Okay, so so Mark Horowitz has done a lot of work in this, and he has uh, he's shown that, uh, or he's he's found evidence that uh, the let's say the drug saturation is hyperbolic so that you, so a small, when you're starting the drug, a small amount will have a a larger effect on receptor occupancy. And as you increase the dose of the drug, the um, it has less and less effect. There's a uh, uh, less rate on return, right? So you reach this plateau of effect or receptor occupancy uh, uh, saturation uh and going past that there's you know you, you don't get any marginal <clears throat> any marginal uh, uh, uh additional effect
3: is it like the point of diminishing return does that yeah, translate
2: <laughs> right 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 that's as you as you increase right mm-hmm. so the and and this has been found in studies that you know that there's you know the, there's there are doses that beyond which you don't get any you know any supposed benefit so the um so going off you go in the reverse direction so you're you're, you're you know you're at a pla- you're you're at the plateau and so you can cut make larger cuts but then, then once you get over to the shoulder of the curve your your cuts need to be proportionately smaller so you can follow the shoulder of the curve and not fall off the curve mm-hmm. so when you get down to the lower lower doses a little tiny cut proportionally has more effect on the receptor occupancy than um, than than you had when you were up at the plateau. Mm. I hope that that makes sense. No, to it it
3: does. And then that visualization, kind of, you know, if you have your X Y axis, you can kind of see when that that shoulder happens. How complicated it can be.
2: Right. So when you hit the shoulder, that's like you know that's where you got to. Be careful. Mm-hmm. Now, some people get very complacent, because they say, you know, they'll start off, and they'll cut their dose in half, and it's fine, because they're still on their plateau. Mm-hmm. And then, if they try that again, this is this is typically what your the doctors will tell people, this is how they this is how doctors tell people to taper, cut it in half, then cut it in half again, then quit. So you know, so you go to, to 50% of the dose. Then you go to um, where are you? Where are
3: we? Take twenty-five percent, and then down to like twelve point five.
2: Right, right, and then twelve point five percent. And uh, and um, the thing, the thing is, is that your fifty percent might take you to the shoulder of the curve, and then when you make another uh, another cut, you're going to be sliding down, and then you're going to crash at the end. Mm. So that's it's very typical. I would say. It's extremely common for people to come to my website after a, a taper has failed using this particular method.
1: Yeah, it's really challenging for myself as a as a practitioner in my practice, in my setting, and in, in, especially in communicating to my staff here is that it's very difficult for our clients who are on these drugs to be able to get accurate information, safe information from their from their physicians, it seems like they're following some protocol that is developed. Um, are you aware of the protocol that these doctors are following in order to taper?
2: Do you mean half and half and, and then go off?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I I hear them say that there, there's a protocol for each drug on how to safely taper.
2: Oh, well, they're just making that.
1: Uh, <laughs> okay. I know they make up a lot of things, so, you know- No, I, they're
2: just saying that. Okay. No. They don't know how to taper.
1: Yeah, I don't think the, so.
2: The half and half and half and then go off is just pure folk wisdom among doctors. It's, there's no documentation of that at all. The documentation is that patients who have tried it are stocking all of these pure support groups. <laughs> that it's it's a failed it's a failed method, um, or at, le- at least it results in 50% uh, uh, failures so um yeah that that's where that's where our customers come from, that very method
1: so then with and listen i'm I'm very clear that this is not medical advice, yeah, and uh, we're not asking you to provide medical advice. What I am asking for is your experience over fifteen years. what have you found to be the safest way to Go off antidepressants when you've been on them for an extended period of time, and I don't even know how to define extended period of time. Maybe you can, maybe you can define that for me.
2: Well, okay. So this is going back to when I joined peer support sites way back in two thousand five, two thousand six. Um, the So the patients themselves recognized that this 25% taper rate was not working. So they figured, well, if that's not working, let's try 10%. So they started trying 10% and this seemed to work better. So, you know, fast forward to 2011, when I started my website, I, I compiled that information and I made it into what looks like a protocol but I have to say it's not medical advice Mm -hmm. and uh, but it it, it involves a 10% exponential taper which results in a it's a decaying curve that has you know takes you off the plateau gradually takes you off the plateau past the shoulder and then down a gentle slope uh it's 10% of the last dose you took so if you start at 100 milligrams 10% 10% of that is 90 milligrams. So that's your dose for the first reduction. For how and long? Then, well, we advise a month interval between reductions. And this is so that uh, the half-life of the drug can wash out. And the half-lives of, the, of most antidepressants are about 24 hours, uh, give or take a few. And the so the washout period is five times uh, half life, so that would be about five days. I allow six days for complete washout, so that'd be six days. So so then at the people generally develop withdrawal symptoms in this period while the drug is washing out. In other words, the amount in your in your um, the the amount in your in your bloodstream is do, decreasing, the amount in your brain is decreasing, the amount of the drug is is decreasing. And that's when you withdraw you develop withdrawal symptoms. But some people don't don't develop withdrawal symptoms during that period during that washout period, because there's an because a tiny bit of a, of the drug is still in their in their system, right? Because it's washing out on a curve, and another expansion exponential curve. And the um, So so that tiny amount is supporting supporting their um, I guess you'd say receptor sensitivity enough so that they could so that it doesn't cause withdrawal symptoms right then. So we let the washout occur over let's say a week and then we observe for withdrawal symptoms after that because it can take some time for them to escalate. You know they'll start out with you know like I feel like I have a cold or a mild headache and then they can get worse so we want to allow time for observation to see if that particular reduction was successful so that's why we're saying a month I mean it seems like a seems like a long time and it does mean that the tapers take a long time but if you do another reduction prematurely you're going to compound the withdrawal symptoms they're going to get progressively worse so you have to pay attention to mild withdrawal symptoms And take that as a sign that uh, you possibly might need to either extend the amount of the the, the length of the observation period or uh, make a smaller reduction.
3: Um, Are there risks during this period that are observed from your community? The risk? Yeah, the risks as they go off um, in terms of anything that they need to be more mindful of uh, or aware of.
2: Well, what we find is that uh, drinking alcohol probably causes, it, it will make it all worse.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, if by any chance they get COVID or they take an antibiotic, they should not be tapering. Uh, antibiotics can can cause symptoms that seem to be very much like withdrawal symptoms. If you're if you're uh, sensitive to that, there's 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 some kind of a, a susceptibility when people are in that. You know, when their nervous systems are in a vulnerable state from tapering, it seems as those bad stuff happens with antibiotics and really bad stuff happens with uh, alcohol. COVID is a wild card. Hmm.
1: What about supplements or, you know, a specific diet or nutrition? Have you found at all anecdotally that this could somehow ease the symptoms
2: Well, I don't think there's any real remedy for withdrawal symptoms. Um, But I think that, you know, you have to picture it as your nervous system rebuilding itself and your nervous system is part of your body. So if you do stuff that's healthy for your body, your nervous system is going to assist your nervous system to recover. So if you have a diet of like beer and junk food, it's not going to be as helpful to you in rebuilding your general health as, you know, like perhaps not having any alcohol and eating like, uh, you know, fresh fresh food and fresh veggies. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of fresh veggies, by the way, because of the folate and uh, you, you, which is good for your nervous system and general uh, circulation and digestion and so forth. So I think that, If you're a person who doesn't eat fresh veggies, then maybe you should, you know, add some. Uh, But, but yeah, I mean, in general, our diets are terrible. And, you know, and if you want to heal from any type of injury, it's better for you to to eat well.
3: Asparagus is a great source for folate. I'm eating it tonight.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also, oh, yeah, you said about supplements. Okay. So over the years... Uh, and I think that the um, the withdrawal communities borrowed this from the CFS communities. Uh, people have found that um, the omega-3 fish oil is can be really helpful. Now, omega-3 fish oil um, is another, it's another dietary issue with the modern diet that we don't get enough omega-3s and the uh, fish oil is a good concentrated way to get them to boost our omega 3s and the um the the, the nervous system uh, omega 3s play a big role in the biophysiology of the nervous system <laughs> so 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 it's possible that omega 3s will assist rebuilding of the of the uh, whatever whatever readjustments the nervous system has to make um, We also find that magnesium as magnesium citrate or magnesium glycinate has a calming effect. And again, this is something that's missing from our modern diets because factory farming has leached minerals out of the soil. So magnesium is important um, and we don't get enough of it. So so supplementing with magnesium at uh, small doses periodically throughout the day can cause, you know, can assist in calming. And it also has a good effect on restless legs. So, which is caused from, it, it, magnesium is a muscle relaxant. So so, so we suggest omega-3s and a magnesium, but we're very um, kind of like non-enthusiastic about supplement packages for withdrawal.
1: Thank you. This is all great information. I have to ask you a question. I've thrown myself into the literature on antidepressants, and I use that term quite loosely, um, whether or not they should even be part of the mental health care system and approach. And I can't help but come to the conclusion that they were fraudulently brought to market, that any uh, positive effects that are attributed to the drugs may be nothing more than an amplified placebo response or, you know, part of the natural recovery or doctor-patient interaction. Um, And when it comes to weighing benefits versus costs, given all the safer and more effective alternatives when somebody is struggling, it's very hard for me to ever make a recommendation that an antidepressant should be part of the uh, entire treatment plan. But I seem to uh, stand out on that. There's not many people like me who are out there making these type of claims. But I call it like I see it. I've been doing this work for quite some time. I don't really come across people who say, hey, my life has significantly improved because I found this antidepressant. I do see a lot of neutral responses. I'm not sure. It might be working. It might not be working. But I'm inundated with people who've experienced problems, maintain depression, go into chronic depression, experience acute withdrawal, protracted withdrawal. I can't imagine uh, this being a, a frontline kind of intervention. Now you took antidepressants to start. Um, do you believe they actually have a place in our in our system and uh, do you support their use?
2: Okay, good question. Uh, I... Um i understand from our specialist colleagues in psychiatry that there there is something that is called i don't know extremely major depression that requires antidepressants now i don't i'm i don't i don't i don't, I don't treat people so people don't come to me for treatment of this so I can't say anything about it. I'm going to say I'm going to grant maybe it exists. So so I don't I don't know. I mean you know I I I give it. I I, I can't I I don't know anything about that. Um. So. But aside from that, it seems as though antidepressants are vastly vastly oversold. The major the huge minor majority the majority of people who are taking antidepressants do not have this extreme condition of depression and uh it's it seems as though that most of the their problems are probably uh the usual family his you know their history their you know lack of lack of emotional support poverty you know things things that are not uh you know that are, that are not this unrelenting extreme depression that might be resolved by other means um so in my understanding is that a general rule in medicine is to use the least invasive method first not anymore and, uh, Yeah, well, and drugs are considered to be an invasive method. So, uh, so I think that, you know, that in a perfect world, it would be least invasive methods that would be the first resort rather than drugs. But, but we get the drugs because they're cheap and fast. Um, That said, if my position is that if somebody likes their drug, I'm not going to tell them that they shouldn't be taking their drug. And uh, for all I know, the drug is causing them to, ca- keeping their whatever their problem is at bay. So, so I, the people who come to my website are voluntarily, have voluntarily on their own decided that they wanna come off their drugs. I don't, I don't try and persuade anyone to go off their drugs. Further, and I, this is only my personal opinion, I think that we're in the last phase of the antidepressant era and that prescribed amphetamines are going to be taking over. Now, prescribed amphetamines are actually much better antidepressants than antidepressants are. And I'm not selling them because they're terrible drugs and they are they're going to bring about dependency and I'm not going to be I will not be counseling people about tapering ant- amphetamines. I'm gonna leave that to the doctors, it's their problem. So so uh, yeah, so I think they were seeing a real, real serious upswing in the prescription of amphetamines. And in fact, amphetamines make everybody feel more competent, more active, more, you know, more self-confident, more imaginative, more everything and that's why they've been so popular as sleep as street drugs. So um, so uh, but again, you know they have their downside, which is very, very richly profiled in the addiction medicine literature. And it, you don't have to be overdoing antidepressants and lying in the gutter as a tweaker in order to become dependent on them. And having those medical uh, problems that arise from taking, ent- uh, taking uh, ma- amphetamines long term. Anyway, so and we're seeing here in California just an absolute rash of ADHD uh, diagnoses, which in which in some cases are really absurd, especially down in Silicon Valley. So, so uh, you know, so that's where I am with, ant- with
3: antidepressant prescription. It's a reason. <laughs> It's Did a, I cover your question? Yes.
1: It, it's a very reasonable response and it, it doesn't differ much from, you know, my viewpoint on it. I'm not, I think people, most people who are, who are coming for help when they're struggling want to feel better. And so that's our point right, right there is we give them accurate information in order for them to take the steps to improve their life. And that, in my opinion, is not Drugs. And I, I hope you're wrong that we're moving into amphetamines to be viewed as antidepressants because I mean it, it, it's the same idea of saying alcohol is our social anxiety drug, right so yeah. like, to, to think about our, our the quality of our lives and our mental health in terms of uh, decreasing any you know emotion that is viewed as uncomfortable or difficult um, through through drugs I think it's a dangerous ideology to be to be honest with you because it always leads to the same road I mean that the the path that one takes is now you have a drug abuse problem and you, rather than a what we would you know call as a mental health problem mental health problems are something that can be uh you can evolve through uh well, with so many different ways go ahead
2: yeah I would say it wouldn't be a drug abuse problem it would be a drug dependency problem because it's not they could be taking the drug as prescribed, but they'll exactly. be dependent. Yeah. So, 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 you know, so we're not saying that people are going to be, you know, like uh, end up as, uh, you know, like the, the type of addicts that they see in movies. But they're going to become dependent on the drug so that they won't be able to function without it.
1: I make that mistake all the time. I yeah, use that yeah. word abuse instead of dependence. And I, I apologize. Uh, I, I get that sometimes in uh, back on social media and I have to apologize again. Yeah, it's a slip
2: in big trouble for that. Yeah. And it it, it drug is drug
1: dependence, drug right? Drug. Your body is now dependent upon it.
2: Yeah. It's dependence. Um, yeah, well, it could be that amphetamines won't be, you know, won't be the drug of choice, but it seems like, boy, it seems like there's a real, it seems like they're going up, up on the charts right now. But, uh, I think that also that psychiatric pres- psychiatric prescribing, whether it's done by GPs or done by psychiatrists, is truly moving into the area of lifestyle medicine. They're, what they're doing is is they're helping people, they're enabling people to uh, continue certain lifestyles with, uh, with with the drugs. So, um, which I you know I think is a real ethical slippery slope for medicine. Uh, but, you know, I mean, we could be moving into an era where it's okay. Uh, the, however, we don't have any structures to deal with the, uh, dependence issues that might arise from this. So we have no structures of, it, of, of it for that. And the doctors are not informed about it at all. So what we have is kind of like, you know, it's one of those, um, there was that that old uh, uh, ad that you, you know for for this um, you you can get in but you can't get out kind of thing. What was it for Roach Roach? Oh Motel? yeah, the Roach Motel. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So true. So
2: you know you get into the the sticky part of it and then you're stuck. So uh, the so I think you might want to cut that part. Out. No, no, that's,
3: no, that's, a that's great. That's perfect. That's a great analogy. <laughs> that's so true. It is. It's it's, it's honest. I'm just curious, um, you know, willing or unwillingly, you become a great resource regarding antidepressants. Uh, what, what leaves you hopeful? Where? What's coming up that makes you think that we're really kind of moving into some improvements? What are you seeing?
2: Oh, boy. Well, I think that the, I think something new and unusual is happening here in that the, there's so many people who have been exposed to uh, psychiatric drug withdrawal, and they're finding the, they're finding each other on social media, and some of them are influential, in high places. So, uh, so I think that uh, this is a patient patient movement that maybe medicine hasn't seen before. You know, there are patient movements, but this one is, I think, there's there are good reasons for people to coalesce and they are determined uh, and they're kind of real some of them are really angry Mm. so there's um, I think quite a lot of um, members members for this you know for this the citizens protest are created all the time because of the ongoing prescription so there's like generations upon generations of people coming in you know, the, the Zoomers are about to uh, to to have difficulty with going off of drugs. So they're going to be joining, you know, it's, it's just it keeps on getting refreshed and it can't can't help it get bigger because there are so many people on psychiatric drugs. So uh, so so that I think is a new thing. And I think that we're what we're seeing. I mean, you know, those of us who view this through the lens of Twitter is that. Uh, psychiatrists have been quite a hard time dealing with this. Uh, And they really don't want to hear the outcry from the patients. Again, some of them are very angry and that might be hard for professionals to listen to. Uh, But but I think there's a lot of patient activism that is um, unprecedented. Uh, Also in in the UK, the uh, reformers have gotten, very well organized and have been moving forward with um uh working with the NHS to change their guidelines. So some there's some improvements that are actually being codified in medical practice in the UK.
3: Thank you. Yeah
1: I think that's a brilliant analysis. Um and I see the same thing on Twitter. I'm relatively new to Twitter past couple of years and one of the things that has absolutely appalled me has been the reaction from some of the psychiatrists to those who have been harmed. Um, the level of arrogance and uh, repeating pseudoscientific ideas that just invalidate the experience of the patient is so, uh, anti their ethics. And it's been really, really disappointing. Disappointing. I think it's fueled a backlash and an anger and an anti-psychiatry movement. Um,
2: yeah, I think that they don't do the profession any 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 services. But but the but I would like to point out that some people make more noise than others, and there are sympathetic psychiatrists and, and sympathetic GPs, and among my followers, and I think I'm real clear about where I stand. You know, this is this is a secret. I do have psychiatrists following me.
1: Yes, um, it, it's very important to not overgeneralize. Uh, we've had some great discussions with some outstanding psychiatrists on this podcast. There are psychiatrists who have kind of innovated and moved outside of what has been typical contemporary DSM drug model. It's still the overwhelming majority, but there are, there are innovators out there and like anything, right? There's, there's great people who are very compassionate and kind we had Doug Beach on here, and I, you know, I put him in that category. There's a lot of really good doctors and physicians who just want to help. Uh, and they're kind of victims of the, the system yeah. in which they're, they're trained and the power of the pharmaceutical industry and the allopathic medical model, the training, the academics that have been on the payroll. So they believe that they are following best available evidence, and they believe what's written in their textbooks, And they don't really understand some of the corruption that's behind it. And uh, that's the unfortunate part. I think there, post-COVID especially, there is a bit of a mass awakening uh, to not blindly trust the, the medical authority and to be able to take some responsibility for your health by doing research, listening to podcasts, getting alternative information, and asking critical questions. I want to uh, end this podcast by just asking this final question. Uh, if an antidepressant is recommended by a medical professional, given what you've known now for 15 plus years and what you've experienced yourself, what questions should patients be asking?
2: Well, they should be asking, what is the, what's the end game? That, I think that they should be, that, that's the first thing that they should ask is, how long should I be taking this? What should I expect? From from it, and how am I going to go off? So, so I think that one of the problems is that people in general, you know, when they when they're new to this, to this, um, it 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 doesn't they, they don't question uh, if the course of treatment. They don't they 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 think that they think it's possible they might be on the drug forever, and they accept that they don't understand that, you know, that over time, it could wear off and not, you know, they won't get any uh, benefit from it. Um, So they don't ask those questions, they are just going to rely on the doctor to make the decision for them. So they need to ask that. If they don't, if it's not real, if they don't really intend to stay on the drug forever, they need to ask about the, the end game. So they just can't assume that you know, the plan
1: is set up. Excellent. This has been a conversation that exceeded my expectations. <laughs> I, I, I am really glad that you are uh, more public now because um, you're really, really smart. And I got better analysis today on antidepressants and antidepressant withdrawal than any physician that I've tried to consult with. And I know that you're hesitant to put yourself out there as an expert because you don't have that medical degree, but I think all our listeners would probably agree that you have a vast amount of knowledge, you follow the scientific literature, you have experience, you have lived experience, and you have hands-on work with thousands of members to try to develop some headway here in science and safety. So... Um, Adele, I really want to thank you for your contribution, everything that you're doing for, for those who have been experiencing what is, amounts to hell for, for too many people. And then just your work as an advocate because you're, you're bringing attention to a really important issue that's, I think, saving lives and helping people. So just from the bottom of my heart, I want to, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for this excellent conversation.
2: Thank you, Roger.
0: Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.